if your memories are very good, you might remember that we are in the middle of a series on fear, or maybe I should say we're coming to the end uh, of a series on fear. This is the third of three parts of the series that we have called Modern Fears. Uh, Now, fear is not a modern concept. Fear has been around since Adam and Eve hid from God in the Garden of Eden. The nature of fear is old, but it does seem to find new ways of expressing itself. I heard someone say once that the devil doesn't have new tricks, but he does have a lot of different ways of dressing up the old ones. And what we have focused on in this series are fears that have been fueled or exaggerated uh, or pushed forward by social media. Uh, Again, I want to say these fears are not new, but they have changed or evolved uh, over the years. And a lot of the good things that we have in life, uh, things like the internet, like instant access to information, uh, things like an unprecedented amount of choice in how we spend our time, like uh, uh, smartphones and social media feeds where we are always a click of our phones away from connecting in with each other. These things have created a culture for these fears to grow. These things are like the sugar and water allowing the yeast of these fears uh, to expand and permeate in a way that maybe they haven't been able to uh, before. And any of you uh, who receive our bulletins should have gotten an email earlier this week with a link to the first two sermons. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to listen to them. Um, Every once in a while, I'll be referencing back to some of what they spoke about, but they had really good things to say. Darren and Mike had good things to say about the fear of missing out and the fear of uh, not being amazing. And today, we are talking about F-O-P-M, FOPM, I guess. I wrestled a lot with what to say. I think I'm going with FOPM. Hopefully, that's not funny by the end. It just makes sense. Uh, But I told Kim Siemens after Mike's sermon a few weeks ago that I was speaking on F-O-P-M, fear of P-M, and she sent me uh, a bunch of guesses. There's a string of maybe 20 or 30 text messages over the last weeks with her trying to guess the answer. It's entirely possible that she has put more hours into this sermon than I have, Uh, but she didn't get it. And I don't blame her. It's a bit of a tricky one. Uh, Today we are talking about fear of passionless monotony. Fear of passionless monotony. And there's no better way to overcome a fear than face it, so I've prepared a four-hour presentation. (laughs) Strap in. That shiver that just went up your spine, that sharp intake of breath, that's actually not fear of passionless monotony. Uh, uh, Maybe the simplest way to boil it down is, is the fear of passionless monotony says, what if I miss my calling? What if I go and I get my master's degree in a field that I love and I end up working at Starbucks? What if I don't achieve greatness? And so that's what we are getting into today, the fear of passionless monotony. And these three fears that we've been talking about, I think can get a little bit confusing, can start to blur together. There's a lot of overlap between them. So before we dive in, I thought maybe a good way to help distinguish what we're talking about today would be to spend a little bit of time trying to create some uh, distinction. And, and the reason they are so similar is because really they are all asking the same question at different levels. And to help you understand what I mean, I've created a fictional, hypothetical, millennial character who uh, experienced these fears in high school, and we're going to call him Jessup. Jessup. So Jessup 
was a pretty popular guy in high school. You might say he was pretty cool, like in an unconventional, uh, mysterious sort of way. Yeah, he's a shirt untucked kind of guy. Yeah, Darren knows what I mean. <laughs> Jessup had a lot of different interests, and as a result, mixed in with a lot of different friend groups. He also had trouble saying no to things, so he tended to overcommit, filling his life up to the brim. The problem was, although his social life was active, he started to worry. When he would go to one youth group, he wondered what was happening at the other one. When he was with one group of friends, he worried about the party he was missing with the other groups. Not only was this lifestyle of overcommitting exhausting, it was also hollow, as he could never really settle or find peace in the place that he was. And that's FOMO, fear of missing out. On top of that, Jessup's social lifestyle meant that his marks were taking a hit. Although he maintained a happy exterior, uh, Jessup was internally in turmoil because he was concerned about his marks. He had high standards for himself, and he wasn't achieving those. So, sort of uh, paradoxically, because of the anxiety about his grades, he actually began to slack off in his courses. Because not trying was easier than this stress and this fear that was in him. In fact, one time, Jessup had a piano exam that he had not prepared for, and rather than face the music, get it? <laughs> In a moment of panic, he intentionally dropped the piano lid onto his finger so that it would bruise, and he would have a good excuse to postpone the exam. But Jessup's parents and piano teachers still don't know about that. So let's keep that between us. That's fanba. That's fear of not being amazing. Finally, Jessup would lay awake at night sometimes, wondering about what was going to happen after high school. His parents and teachers told him the sky was the limit. He had the aptitude or giftedness to do a lot of different things. Well, Jessup was probably never going to be in the NHL, but a lot of other things for sure. He was terrified of making the wrong decision, though. What if the career path he thought he wanted ended up being a dead end? What if the choices that he made locked him into a place where he didn't feel fulfilled? Jessup felt like he was too young to be making such big decisions. He barely even knew who he was at 18. He knew there must be something specific he was meant for. And the stress of getting that choice wrong almost paralyzed him sometimes. And that's FOPM. That's the fear of passionless monotony. Uh, and to be clear, if any of you are concerned for Jesse, Jessup, <laughs> he was uh, generally a happy teenager, and he's a very happy adult. But he can definitely look back and recognize the existence of those fears in his life. And so to summarize or to clarify uh, what I'm getting at with this chart here, FOMO is a, is a socially focused fear. You're with your friends or family at a gathering and you keep taking out your phone to text message other friends. Or you never settle because you're always looking somewhere else. What am I missing out on? And FONBA is very much an internal fear. You're looking at yourself and wondering what your value is. How do you stack up? Are you good enough? Are you smart enough? Are you pretty enough? Are you talented enough? And FOPM, what we're talking about today, is an existential fear. It's questions like, what if I don't find my place in the universe? What if I don't achieve my calling? And it's a little bit less uh, direct or tangible or immediate than these other fears. It's more of this big kind of looming fear or question that's over top of you. And so as we dig into this, I want to map out the rest of our journey this morning. I'm going to start out uh, by taking a look at the character of fear of passionless uh, monotony. And then I want to take a look at the church's relationship 
to this fear because as we'll talk about later, uh, out of the three fears, I think the church has a very unique or specific uh, relationship with this one. And then we're going to head to scripture to see what is the antidote uh, to this fear. So we'll start with the character. Uh, We are living in a real life contradiction. Technology is making our lives easier and more convenient than ever before. We've talked about this stuff before. We have more and more accessible media entertainment than ever before. Uh, Most of our lives would look like magic to someone time-traveling from even 40 or 50 years ago. For under $10 a month, you can get instant streaming access to literally thousands of TVs and movies, uh, TV shows and movies at home. Our phones can talk to us, think for us, order for us, pay for us, and plan for us, and we have choice. More choice than ever before on supermarket shelves and in movie theaters and on Amazon and through social media. Who our friends are, what we buy, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. More choice than ever. And yet, somehow, with all of these good things happening, North America is getting less and less happy. Studies show that people are becoming more and more dissatisfied. Uh, As our level of choice increases, our level of anxiety about missed opportunities also increase. And that's bad enough when you're picking a movie. We see it in an even more extreme way when you're picking a direction uh, for your life. More than ever, there are options available to young people in terms of career path. This is a pretty new luxury uh, for society. A hundred years ago, if your dad was a blacksmith, chances are you were going to be a blacksmith. If your dad was a farmer, chances were you were going to be a farmer. And pretty much everyone was a farmer or a tradesperson or a general laborer of some kind. Of course, there were doctors and lawyers and teachers, but for the most part, very early on, your path in life was sort of set. There weren't a lot of questions about what am I going to do when I grow up. And youth today, and young adults today, have hundreds or even thousands of paths laid out before them. They are told that nobody can tell them what mold they should fit into, that they can achieve anything, and they are told this by teachers and parents and celebrities and mentors. The world is your oyster. One problem here is that according to studies, more choice almost always makes you less happy with your final choice, with your final selection. Uh, There's a study run where customers were surveyed Uh, with two different ice cream shops. These ice cream shops were set up as a study. Uh, The first one had 24 flavors that you could pick from, and the second had only two, chocolate and vanilla. And people got to choose which shop they went into, and by far people went to the shop that had 24 flavors. It was much more popular. But upon leaving the shop, the people who had only two flavors to pick from were consistently significantly happier with their choices. We as humans believe we want choice. We think that we want choice, that it's going to make us happier. But in the end, studies show that we end up less satisfied because we end up worrying more about what we missed uh, than what we've got. And as these choices have uh, increased, so has the amount of emphasis placed on them. Uh, What we do is who we are. Ask a university student about their chosen path, about their, their goals for their life, And they might talk about this Japanese concept of ikigai. And I I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Ikigai means a reason for being. 
uh, and it's very much tied into your career. It's defined as this magical thing that you can find in your life that you love, that you're good at, that the world needs, and that you can be paid for. And Ikigai is right at the cross-section of all of these things, and nothing but the center is really going to fulfill you. Nothing but the very center is ever going to be good enough. Anything less than that represents a failure to achieve your potential or a failure to find your calling. And more and more, young people are heading into what psychologists are calling a quarter-life crisis, a period of insecurity and doubt and disappointment surrounding your career and your relationships and your financial situation. What if I miss my calling? What if I don't get this? What if my life is meaningless? Uh, Fopham is a fear of a meaningless existence on missing the boat of what matters. And, and in many ways, when I look at this fear, uh, this fear of meaninglessness or this fear of passionless monotony, it, it sounds to me like new lyrics to a very old melody, uh, one that Solomon was singing thousands of years ago in Ecclesiastes. Uh, there is no one that speaks more pointedly in the Bible about passionless monotony than him. This is from chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Now no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Solomon's words represent the end result of this fear, what people are trying so hard to avoid. Fopham at its core is a fear of worthlessness. It takes, excuse me, it takes every good thing and robs it of its value. It has you asking, but is this really the best thing? Is this that one thing? What if this isn't meant for me? There's this endless anxiety that is created that says there is one thing, one job, one career, one soulmate, one destiny, or one plan for me. And if I miss out on something, if I make a wrong choice, if I do the wrong thing, I've lost my opportunity to ever achieve my ikigai. I've lost my opportunity to ever find my calling. My life is off the rails. And instead of my destiny, I'm now stuck in this gray, lifeless existence where I've missed it. I'm just going day to day, and I missed it. The simple recipe uh, for a fear of passionless monotony is this. Combine more choice than we have ever had in the history of humankind, along with pressure from within and without to achieve greatness, plus an increasing sense that the career you choose ultimately defines your identity and determines your ability to be happy in life, and you get... Fapa. So now I want to talk a bit about the church's relationship uh, to this fear. Um, there are many things in our life that can drive or exaggerate this fear. Social media can, uh, celebrities can, advertisers, uh, pressure from school teachers, uh, pressure from employers, um, self-help gurus. Uh, but the one that I want to look at uh, the closest today is the way that the church, that religion, can actually sometimes drive this fear of passionless monotony. 
Uh, more than any of the other fears, this one I think can very easily get dressed up in religious language. It can very easily get talked about in very religious terms and seem uh, very spiritual and we can sometimes unknowingly or unintentionally uh, or sometimes intentionally communicate this fear, uh, especially to our young people, very easily. Uh, when we talk about dating, we talk about waiting or being patient for the one. We sort of subtly project this idea out that there's three and a half billion people of the opposite gender and one person out there is your magical soulmate, the other half of your heart. What an impossible standard to meet. What incredible pressure uh, to get it right. God has one person out there for me and if I don't go to a coffee or if I jump too quickly into the wrong relationship, I'm going to miss out or I'm going to mess up his sovereign plan. And, and we can treat careers in the same way. Uh, many graduation cards have been given with uh, Jeremiah 29.11 on it. It's a beautiful verse. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's yeah, a beautiful promise. But we often take it out of context. Uh, just a few verses earlier, Jeremiah makes it clear who God is talking to when he says this. In verse 4 it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is not meant to be a verse to an individual, to somebody stuck at a crossroads trying to figure out what decision to make. Uh, this is a verse to an entire group of people, to the entire nation of Israel. And often we don't include uh, the verse immediately before verse 11, verse 10, which says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Don't hear me say that God doesn't guide us in the decisions that we make or that he doesn't have plans for us or that he doesn't care about where we work or what we do or who we marry or how we live or where we live, I should say. I am pretty confident uh, though, in saying that this verse is not really about those sorts of decisions. This verse speaks to a God who is working to bring all of humanity back to him. It speaks to a God who is promising future redemption for a lost people, generations in the future. And it's a wonderful promise, but part of what makes it wonderful is that it's bigger than you or me or our individual journeys. It's about the church, God's chosen people, uh, but our society is really built uh, to twist things around to the individual, to individuality. And we get caught up in this idea of, of following God's plan for our lives, if there's a specific path for us to take. And to be honest with you, I don't see a lot of that in the Bible. Paul talks about giftedness, and he talks about unique gifts and different roles that we have to play in the church. But I think some of that's common sense. Uh, I'm never going to be a figure skater. Or to talk about church roles, you don't want me decorating the stage for Advent or repairing the shingles on the roof. There are some things that I'm naturally gifted in, that I'm good at. And then there are things that I'm not. And God calls us to live in that giftedness, to not fight against the way that we've been created, but to recognize where we can fit in. And God calls us to specialize, to fill unique roles that we can fill in the body, to contribute in the ways that we can but if we get so caught up in trying to figure out where we connect in perfectly that we never actually plug in, or if we get so tied into figuring out who we really are and what our true identity is that we can't take a step until we've got that nailed down, 
then I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that no amount of personality testing or MBTI or Enneagram or giftedness profile tests or prayer retreats or seminars or books on calling or short-term missions trips or adventure Bible schools are going to take away this fear, this fear of passionless monotony. None of these things are going to suddenly unveil the perfect plan that God has for your life that he's been hiding from you. None of these things are going to unlock this secret level of contentment that exists for those who have caught the right train and are on the right track. These things can be excellent tools. Lots of these things are great things. They're healthy, good things to do, but they are not the answer to combating this fear. The good news is that I already know the plan that God has for you. I can tell you exactly what God wants for your life, exactly how he wants to use you, exactly where he wants you to work, exactly who he wants you to marry. And you can have it all by purchasing my new book, Conquering Fopham, for only $35. Tell your friends, the church just got a new revenue stream. Nah, I'll give it to you for free. But I'm going to build up to it a little. That way I can make sure you pay attention for the last five minutes here. Uh, when Darren talked about FOMO, the antidote to that was to make an intentional choice to find joy uh, in the journey and the successes of others. That being a part of the body of believers gave you this supernatural ability to be in multiple places at once that we can choose to celebrate with each other. And when Mike spoke about uh, Fonba, the fear of not being amazing, the antidote was to think about where are you getting your source of value from. As children of God, we should be finding our value in our Heavenly Father and Him crucified. We are saved and redeemed by Jesus and Him alone, and our value comes from that and nothing else. And so just like these fears are closely connected, the antidotes are too. If you can find joy in the success of others, instead of just comparing or being jealous, and if you can root your identity and value in Jesus Christ, then you are well on your way to defeating Fopham. But the specific antidote or point of advice that I want to give today is found in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 17 to 24. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. Paul, the writer of this book, was a radical Guy. He had a radical conversion experience where he dropped his career path and did a full pivot to a very extreme lifestyle, going from town to town, no home, no wealth, calling people to follow Jesus with that same sort of passion. And you might expect that Paul would have said when he walked into a community, when he walked into a church, you might expect that he would have said, sell everything, give it all away, become missionaries. Spread the good news, quit your jobs, leave your families, you've been getting it all wrong, you've been missing God's plan, you're not achieving your ikigai, it's time for a radical change. But instead, over and over, we see Paul saying things like this, like he does in 1 Corinthians. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was, an, was he uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God has called them. Were you a slave when you were called? 
don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith is the Lord. When the one who was called... I'm going to start again. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Paul here isn't especially concerned about what job you have or who you're courting or whether you get that promotion or what major you pick in university or whether the grass currently looks greener on the other side of the fence. I mean, he says, if you're a slave, don't let it trouble you. If there is a scenario that could look like passionless monotony, slavery is probably it. That's got to be at least two steps below Starbucks barista. Paul says God does have a plan for you. He does have a calling for you, but it's independent of your job or your situation. Now, there are specific situations where God calls people to do extraordinary or unusual things. But if God is calling you to do something very out of the ordinary, I tend to see in the Bible that his call is hard to miss. Moses gets a burning bush. Gideon gets a fleece. Samuel gets spoken to audibly. Jonah tries to run away from his calling and gets sent back in the stomach of a fish. Paul gets blinded and knocked off a horse. Mary gets a visit from an angel. So there are specific people who get called into extraordinary ministry. Uh, But for most of us, for a lot of us, it isn't that way. Paul contacts the church in Rome. Uh, for support on his missions trip to Spain, but he doesn't say a word about anybody dropping what they're doing and going along with them. The idea is that they should stay working at their jobs and in their community and serve there. Now, that doesn't give us free license to slack off or to not put effort in. It doesn't mean that our lives aren't important. We have been transformed. We have been reborn into new lives as Christians. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and we are called to great things. So what is God's call on your life? What is going to save you from a fear of passionless monotony, from a meaningless existence, from not achieving what you were meant for? Here it is. According to Jesus, this is what God requires of you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Is that simple? That's our calling. Not to move across the world and be in missions. Not to sell all of your possessions and live as homeless. Not to quit your job and stand on a street corner soapbox. Are some called to missions? Yes, absolutely. Are some called to full-time ministry? Yes. Are some called to radical, crazy leaps of faith that completely turn their lives upside down? Yes, some of us are. But don't worry too much about that. Don't get trapped into this idea that your life isn't enough within your current circumstance. Simply let your day-to-day, normal, everyday life be filled with love for God and love for the people around us. And when we accept that calling, when we build our lives around the simple truth, I'm just bringing that icky guy slide back up. If we love God and love people at the top there, we are going to be working with what we love. 
And the world needs Jesus. More than any product, more than any process, the world needs Jesus. And our payment, if you want to call it that, is eternal and complete and worth more than any paycheck. And we have the Holy Spirit in us, equipping us for good works. And we are called to this ministry. And God is going alongside us. As Christians, whether we're a CEO or a janitor, whether we live in a mansion or a tent, rest assured that if we are living our lives focused on God and on others, fear of passionless monotony, fear of insignificance, of worthlessness, has no place in our hearts because God has made us complete fully equipped for every good work. Amen? Amen.